turn with me this morning to the book of Luke. The book of Luke will be in Luke chapter 1 this morning. As you, as you turn there this morning, I just wonder if you're like me and you think back on your life and perhaps remember songs that were important at various points in your life, or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you are like me and you go down the road and you hear a song or reminded of a song and it brings back memories. I think of songs like Just a Swingin'. Does anyone remember that one? <laughs> Some of you remember it, you're shaking your head that you don't want to remember it, right? I, I remember that and when I hear that song or think about that song, I think about summers in Georgia sitting out on the front porch just a swinging, you know? So I think about it. I, I remember uh, I'm proud to be an American. Surely you remember that one. I hear that one, and I hear Lee Greenwood start in, and I mean every patriotic feeling in my bones just burst forth, and you get chill bumps, and your hair on the back of your neck stands up. I remember a song that I'll never forget, I Will Be Here, sung on my wedding day as Steph and I were married. Still remember everything about that song in that moment. And then I remember perhaps one of the most traumatic songs in my life, Tiptoe Through the Tulips, with Pastor Ricky dressed up as Tiny Tim singing. And I can't erase that from my mind. I just wish I could. You know, in, in 1 Samuel 2, you don't have to turn there. In 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10, Hannah sang a song. She said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there's none besides you. There is no rock like our God. She goes on to, to sing and to rejoice in God, who is the God of her salvation, a song that Certainly, the Israelites knew, certainly as we look at Mary this morning, Mary knew this song, as we'll see in a moment. And then we turn to Psalm 98 that Robert read to us earlier, and we read this psalm, this prayer, this song. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love, his faithfulness. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And then we'll look this morning at Mary's song in Luke 1, in which she sings a new song unto the Lord for the great and mighty things that he has done. As we go into Advent, we're going to talk about songs, because songs are important. They're, they're influential. They're inspiring. They express ideas. They express our feelings. They inspire us. They remind us. They unite us. Songs are important. And we look at this Advent season, several songs that we see written and prayed to the Lord in the coming of the Messiah. This morning, we look to Mary's, Mary's song. Next week, we'll look at Zechariah's song, and then the angel's song, and then Simeon's song. And then after Christmas, we'll look at the song of the church in light of all that God has done in sending his son. 
As we do this in the coming weeks, you're going to have the opportunity to hear from various pastors. We're going to do a shared series in the, this Advent season. So next week, Mike will be preaching, then Pastor Bill, and then I'll be back, and Matt will wrap us up. Just a time for us to look into God's Word and to rejoice in all that God has done as we sing songs of Christmas, as we look at the songs that were written in Holy Scripture about the coming of Christ. Let's read this morning from Luke chapter 1. We're going to back up and start in verse 39 for context. Luke 1, beginning in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation." He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. What we're going to look at it this morning is I want us to take a moment to consider Mary's visit. I think there's some important things that we need to just look at and point out and draw out there. Then we'll look at Mary's song and we'll conclude our time considering four implications from Mary's song for us today. So as we look at verses 39 through 45, we, we read of, of Mary's visit to Elizabeth. And the first thing we, we read is that, that she went with haste into the hill country to see Elizabeth. After the angel Gabriel had, had told her of her impregnation of, and her conception of the Messiah and had told her that Elizabeth too had conceived, it says Mary went with haste. She got up and she went. We don't know exactly why she went. There, the text really doesn't reveal that to us. What we might surmise is that she wanted to see another who God had done a miracle in. She wanted to see Elizabeth. She wanted to see the one who, who, who knew somewhat of what she was feeling. We, we read in verse 37, you back up a little bit, we're reminded in verse 37 that there's nothing that will be impossible with God. 
And she knew Mary had been barren. Mary was described as one of old age, right? And now she was pregnant. Because with God, no thing is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And so Mary is likely seeking to see another who would share the astonishment of God's miracle-working power. And so when she comes to Mary, what happens? She walks and she encounters Mary and it says the baby leaped in her womb. He leaped in her womb. We were reminded in our our class on Sunday nights, we were talking about abortion and and the cultural attack on on the gift of life. And and one of the men in there just reminded us of this and said, you know, when, when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, the baby leaped in her womb. We don't read here that John was a mass of tissue. We don't read here that the fetus was in Elizabeth. No, we read that the baby leaped in her womb. He's a baby. He's not a mass of tissue. He's he's not a a fetus. It is a, a baby who is aware and who responds to what is going on outside of the womb. This isn't a sermon on abortion. But we can't move past this point without pointing out that the biblical view of life is that life begins at conception. A baby is a baby from conception. It doesn't become a baby when he or she is born. He's not become a baby. He does not become a person where we have this relatively defined point of personhood that is established by, by you or me or somebody else that is all different. That's not the case. The biblical view is that life begins at conception, that a baby is a baby in the womb and outside of the womb. And so I would say to you this morning that if you stand in support of abortion, you do not stand in line with the biblical view of life that begins at conception. You don't stand with Scripture. You don't stand with Psalm 139 that speaks of of God knitting together life in the womb. You don't stand with Passages such as Jeremiah's call that talks about God having plans and knowing him in the womb. We see here that the baby leaped for joy in the womb. He responded. John responded in the womb. In verse 41, we read that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. It's interesting here. Elizabeth and, and Mary, to our knowledge, had not spoken. It's not like they sent an email to one another and said, hey, I'm going to come visit you because I found this out. And, and they didn't FaceTime or, or call each other. Mary just goes to visit her. And when she sees her, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit reveals to her who is in Mary's womb. And so verse 43, we start to pick up on this humble amazement that Elizabeth has. The same humble amazement that we'll see in Mary's song. Elizabeth says, why is this granted to me? <laughs> why, why do I have this blessing? I, I can't fathom, I can't believe that the mother of my Lord has come to me. The mother of my Lord, she's standing before me. This amazement. Now look at, look at this. I think this is interesting. Verse 43, she says, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, down in verse 45, she calls Mary blessed. Why? Because she believed there would be fulfillment that was spoken to her from who? The Lord. Now, wait a minute. The Lord that's in the womb spoke to her, revealed himself to her, revealed this to Mary, and she believed, and now she's blessed for that? You see, it... It's kind of like Luke 20. Do you remember Jesus is, is talking and, and he, says, he says this? I'll read it to you. You probably don't remember this passage. 
Luke 20, 41 to 44, Jesus said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Right? I don't know. And now Elizabeth is kind of in a similar position where she says, she, she rejoices over the fact that Mary is carrying the Lord who revealed this to her. It, 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 it just starts making our minds smoke because when the eternally existent Son of God takes on flesh and comes to dwell among us as a baby, we have a hard time wrapping our minds around it and we certainly have a hard time articulating it. Mary's probably going, well, um, I'm amazed. <laughs> I, I'm just amazed. I, I can't believe it. And we see right here, right away, that God's ways are greater than our ways. His plans are greater than our plans. And we're reminded that we did not make this story up. It was revealed to us. And we trust it. We believe it. Why? Because we know that the God who revealed it to us is absolutely trustworthy and true and faithful. And so we trust him. We look to him because of who he is. What, is, what does Elizabeth say to Mary? Blessed is she who believed. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. She speaks a beatitude to her. Blessed. Why is she blessed? Why is Mary blessed? Because she believed. She trusted in God who revealed this to her. Mary certainly would have had all sorts of unanswered questions. The, the burdens of, of motherhood would soon be upon her. Judgmental glances of, of those around her who, who see her walk back into Bethlehem as she starts to, to show and it starts to be very evident that she's pregnant, the judgmental glances would come. But in the midst of this, what do we see? We see that Mary believes. When Mary hears the, the unbelievable message from Gabriel, she believes. Belief. Blessed are you who believes. You see, Mary believed God when many might not. And for that, Elizabeth says, blessed are you who believed. Blessed are you who believed. So that brings us to Mary's song. Mary's song beginning in verse 46 and down through verse 55 is, is her response. It's certainly something that had been on her heart as she makes the journey over to see Elizabeth. You can just imagine the thoughts. You can imagine all that she knew. You can imagine the, the songs of, of the Psalms. She, she likely knew and had read and studied Psalm 98. She likely knew and had even sang Hannah's song. And in light of that, knowing all of that, she expresses her own song. She sings a new song unto the Lord. She magnifies the Lord. Verse 46 through 49, she begins, out by, begins by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, what does it mean to magnify the Lord? I, I, I think an easy way to, to think about what it means to, to magnify something, there's kind of two ways. One is we every morning magnify the image that is on the computer back there, on the screens. These screens are much larger than the computer back there. If we had a computer sitting here, you could not see the words. And so those words are magnified that you might behold them, that you might see them more clearly. And so it is magnified for others to see. 
just one thing we understand by my soul magnifies the Lord. Mary is making more of the Lord, enlarging the Lord for others to see, glorifying him, magnifying him before others. Another way we see the idea of magnifying something is when we look in a magnifying glass or we, we look in a microscope and something that the, the eye may not behold or might have a hard time seeing, we magnify it till we can, so we can see it and behold it, have a greater appreciation of it, a greater amazement of it, that it would be enlarged in our own hearts, in our own soul, in our own mind, that would be greater and have a more a deep fascination and appreciation, the value of it. And here Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. It's really the theme of her song. It's the, it's the song, the, the Latin is where we get the, the word magnificat, Mary's magnificat. It is the theme of what we read here. And, and we see, here's what I want you to see through this song, if nothing else, perhaps this morning, is that Mary did not see herself to be the one who was to be worshiped. She did not say, you worship me, magnify me. No, she directed all praise to the Lord. She directed all praise to God. And she begins right away. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, when we read there, my soul and my spirit, it's best to see those two in parallel. She's not distinguishing as though the soul is different from the spirit. It's similar to what Isaiah does in Isaiah 26, 9. He says, my soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. The, the two are, are synonymous terms. They're not two distinct parts of man. The scripture speaks of us as being physical and spiritual, as having a body and having a soul or spirit. Soul and spirit in scripture are best seen and understood as being interchangeable in the Bible. It's known as dichotomy. There are some who would separate body, soul, and spirit into three different distinct parts. That's trichotomy. I don't believe that's the best way to understand and read Scripture. If you look at the whole of it and look across the passages, soul and spirit are used interchangeably. Here, she uses them as parallel synonyms to express the point that she deeply magnifies the Lord. She deeply praises God. It is coming from the depth of who she is. The core of her being worships him and praises him. It is not some superficial act. It's not just some religious uh, habit or just something she says, well, I have to sing now. I have to do something and make something really sound nice for other people to read. No, she is magnifying the Lord because he is a great and a mighty God and she is worshiping him from the core of her being. Now, and here's an important truth that we see right away. As we consider that Mary is about to encounter some serious burdens, isn't she? Have you, have you considered that before and thought about that? I think sometimes we just sugarcoat this whole idea about Mary uh, being a, a young lady, a, a virgin, and she bears a Messiah, and everything's all pretty. We have our nativity sets, or she looks so peaceful and joyful, right? She is never going, oh my goodness, you know. But certainly there have be, had to be those moments where she's thinking, wow, what's about to happen? What's it going to be like when I walk back in to my town? Well, what's it going to be like when I walk down the street? What's it going to be like when I tell my mother and father, What's it going to be like 
five years from now, when I'm raising the Messiah, what's it going to be like 10 years from now, 15 years from now? What, what is it going to be like? There's certainly the burdens of motherhood were, would be upon her. But yet we see here not Mary expressing agony or worry or concern. But we see her saying, I am blessed. <laughs> My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He's looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Listen, the truth that we see right away is that the blessing of the Savior overshadowed the burden of the circumstance. There certainly would be burdens that would come upon her. I mean, simply the, the fact that everyone would look to her and go, wait a minute, have you been promiscuous? H have you done what you should not do outside of marriage? This would be a serious thing then, as it should be today. Mary certainly considered the reality of the burdens that she would face. But yet, she magnifies the Lord. She did not consider herself burdened, but she considered herself blessed. She considered herself blessed. And who does she rejoice in, in this blessing? Who does she exalt in? Who does she magnify? My spirit magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, the Savior. What does it say? My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. God, my Savior. Again, this is a significant statement in contrast to some Catholic theology that you should be aware of. Mary does not set herself aside as being the Holy One that should be worshipped. She looks and she says, God is my Savior. He's my Savior. She's fully aware of what? That she needs a Savior, just like you do, just like I do. She needs a Savior. And she looks and she says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary was blessed, but she's not to be worshipped. There's a big important distinction there. There's a difference there. She doesn't look and say, my soul magnifies the Lord, and, and this is wonderful that God the Savior has done a great work, and now I'm blessed, and you should magnify me. Holy is my name. She does not say that. Everything she says in here directs praise to God, not to herself. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, now all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is whose name? You can talk. Holy is whose name? His name. Not holy is my name. You don't venerate me. You don't pray to me. The Bible does not lead us to pray to Mary. It does not lead us to venerate Mary. It does not lead us to lift high the name of Mary. It leads us to lift high the name of Christ who blessed Mary, leads us to worship him. There was no confusion. <laughs> there was no confusion for Mary as to who was to be worshiped. And there should not be any confusion for the one who opens scripture and reads scripture as to who should be worshiped, who should be praised to, prayed to, who should be exalted. It's Christ and Christ alone. Now, why does Mary magnified the Lord. She gives us three, three reasons there, right? Verse 48, 49, 4, 4, 4. For what? First, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. God, God's loving care and mercy was shown to Mary. 
The, the, the pledged bride of a carpenter was now going to be the mother of the Messiah. Of all that God had, could have chosen, all whom God had, could have chosen, he chose her. He chose her, and, and for that reason, she worshiped. She says, he looked upon the humble estate of his servant, or he, he, he saw, he was mindful of, it might say, mindful of the humble estate of his servant. Mary understands who she is. It's the same thing she said in, in verse um, 38. In verse 38, she says that, that I am the servant of the Lord. I'm the servant of the Lord. Mary does not set herself up as one to be worshipped. She understands who she is before the Lord. She is a servant of His. And He has looked upon her. He has been mindful of her. And she rejoices in this. The second reason that she magnifies the Lord Verse 48, second part, that she would be called blessed for the rest of time. She, she would be called blessed. She says, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. They will look to her and, and say, wow, what a blessing was bestowed upon Mary. Not so that she would be worshipped, but she is blessed. The humble servant girl from a little village would forever be known as what? The mother of the Messiah. She's been blessed by the Lord. She would become an example of a a faithful follower of God who was blessed by Him, who was showered by His grace and His mercy, has had it poured out on her. And she magnified His name. She lifted high the name of the Savior. She lifted high the name of Christ. And so we look to her and we look and see one who is blessed tremendously. And we look and we see Mary who is blessed, who turns and blesses the Lord and praises the Lord. And we have to ask her, are we not similar? Have we not also, like Mary, had God's mercy and grace poured out on us? Should we not lift high the name of God, our Savior? Can we not say the same thing that my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, my soul magnifies the Lord? Should we not be doing this just as Mary did? We certainly should learn from Mary. The third reason that Mary magnifies the Lord is found in verse 49. That the mighty God had done a great thing for her. He who is mighty has done great things for me, she says, Holy is his name. She praises God for his might and for his holiness. The mighty one, it says, the NAS translates the mighty one, or he who is mighty. In the Old Testament, when God is called the mighty one, it typically refers to God, the the warrior God who comes to save his people from attacking nations or warring nations. So you read, here's some examples of that. In Zephaniah 3.17, we read that the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. In Isaiah 1.24, therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. He is the mighty one of Israel. Then we read later in Isaiah 49, verse 26, God says, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your savior and your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. 
the mighty one of Jacob. And now Mary says, he who is mighty, the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. What what is this great thing that he has done? What is it? This this mighty one who fights for his people, who is a, a mighty warrior, what has he done? What has he done? He, he has sent forth his son as a child, not to deliver his people from warring nations, from enemies, earthly kings, but to deliver them, us, from the curse of sin, the penalty of sin, the punishment of sin. He has come to win salvation. He has come to save from his own wrath. That is what the mighty one has done. Listen, there, there's this there's this disconnect today that I think we have that, that is a hindrance to understanding your need for Christ. Some of you, there, there's this disconnect of the importance of morality. That, that I just establish my own morality and I define what is right and what is wrong. Or we just don't think too much about it. it it's not a big deal that I do something. We'll just forget it and move on. The, the problem is that doesn't hold in our own world, we think about breaking laws. You don't just break a law and go, oh, that's no big deal. I'm just going to move on. No one expects this to happen to the man who drove through the parade in Wisconsin. No one says, oh, he made a bad decision, made a mistake. It's okay. He's guilty. He's guilty of a heinous crime. A tragedy. And we understand that. We see that. To a much greater extent, the same is true in our standing before God. That we have broken His law. That we have rebelled against Him. That we have transgressed His holiness. And we don't just go, you know, it's okay. I'll just move past that. It's no big deal. I'll brush it aside. No, we are guilty and we stand as one punishable by a holy God. We stand as one deserving His wrath. But He who is mighty has done a great thing. What is that great thing that He has done? He sent His only Son. The eternal Word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14 tells us that. We understand that he came and lived among us. He came and lived a perfect life. He came and was obedient to the point of death. We look at Philippians 2, 5-11. We're reminded of the great work that Christ did in coming among us and taking on flesh and dying for us, being exalted he rose from the grave. The great thing that the mighty one has done is he has worked salvation as only he can. And we need that. We can't just excuse or push aside our rebellion and our sin. We need Christ. And he still does great things today. You need to know that today. You need to know that the mighty one who did a great thing for Mary and did a great thing in revealing his salvation to the nations is still doing great things today. 
He's still doing great and mighty things. He still looks upon those who have done nothing to earn his mercy and grace, and he still pours out mercy and grace upon us. And so that means if if you're here and you're wrecked with the guilt of sin, then you need to look to Jesus and know the freedom of forgiveness that is found in him. Are you here and you're you're bitter over past decisions and, and circumstances? Your, your heart is bitter, you're, you're racked with angry, then you need to look to Jesus whose mercy is new every morning. Or, or maybe you're, you're gathered here and you're tired and you're weary of people disappointing you. It's just, you, you can't take it anymore. You don't want to be disappointed any longer. You're worn out and you don't even want to invest in a relationship anymore because you're tired of being disappointed. You're tired of being let down. Well, you need to look to Jesus who is ever faithful, who keeps his promises, who is true, and does not disappoint. Or maybe you're here and you're just weary of the brokenness in your own life. Maybe you're, you're weary of the brokenness in your own home, the brokenness that we see in our own nation, in our world. You're weary of that. You're tired of it. But you need to turn to Christ in repentance and faith and look to the one who is making all things new. Turn to Christ. Look to Christ. And this is a, the question this Christmas season, this Advent. Would you look to Christ? Would you turn from your sin? Would you repent of your sin and turn to Christ in faith? Trusting him, knowing him. I would encourage you to do that. I would appeal for you to do that. I would beg for you to do that. As we turn back to our text in verse 50, we see this declaration of mercy that Mary makes. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. I, I think that, that and there is such a big and. It, Mary has said, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior because he's looked upon my humble estate. His, uh, I will be called blessed from, for generations from this point on. He has done a mighty thing for me. Holy is his name. And then she says, and... And, hello, everyone needs to know that his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. His mercy is for you. His mercy is going to continue. His mercy is new every day. It's for those who fear him from generation to generation. This is not talking about those who walk around trembling and scared that that if I don't do the right thing today when I leave here and the way I drive, if I make a mistake or if I get a little angry that God might smite me. It's not talking about that kind of trembling fear fear that God is hovering over you just ready to zap you no it's talking about this reverence of God that we walk around knowing and we live knowing that God is a great and a mighty God whom we worship he is a holy God he is omnipotent he is all-powerful he reigns over all things and we do indeed I think we do indeed stand before him and there is a trembling about us but it's not because we tremble in fear of what he might do to us but we because we tremble in awe of how great and awesome and mighty he is and what he's done for us you see fear of the Lord is a good thing in scripture it is a trait of the godly it is a reverencing of God that causes us to worship and obey him it is the firm and confident faith in God that knows that there is no one like him there's no other God besides him no one can rival him 
and it beckons us not to cower in the corner in fear, but to run to the Lord because he is our rock, he is our stronghold, he is our refuge, and we want to be near him because he is a great and a mighty God. And Mary looks and she says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. This is good news for us today because we are generation to generation. (laughs) This is us. His mercy is for those who fear him. Do you fear the Lord? Do you fear the Lord? The remainder of her song, we see verse 51 to 53, God's ways are not our ways. In verse 51, he scatters the proud. In verse 52, he brings down the mighty. In verse 53, he sends away the rich. But in verse 52, he exalts the humble and he fills the hungry. God's ways and plans are are often counterintuitive to what the world expects. He he doesn't always operate the way we would say, this is how it should work, right? You're reminded of that in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31. I want to read this. This is such an important passage. We've talked about it a little before. When we think about that God's ways are, are not our ways, it's so important to remember what God has done in sending Christ. In verse 18 in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where? is the one who is wise. Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now it gets personal for the Corinthians and for us. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Thanks, Paul. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But, but, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that he does not work the way we work. He does not use the same categories as we use. That in the wisdom of God, he sent forth his son to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life and to die a death in our place and to rise from the grave that we might be saved. It wasn't based on your influence. It wasn't based on your power. It wasn't based on your bank account, your popularity, your looks, your family. It was based on God. It was based on God. Mary finishes her song in verse 44 and 45. I'm sorry, 54 and 55. Remembering that God is faithful. God is faithful. We'll see that theme again next week. Who has God helped? He's helped his people, Israel. Why did he help them? Because they were deserving, because of their sheer number, 
because of their strength, because of their nobility. No. He helped them because he remembered his mercy. What does that mean? What did he remember specifically? He remembers the word that he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, the offspring forever. It means that he remembered his covenant promises. God is faithful. And Mary rejoices in that. Let me leave you today with four implications from the Magnificat. Four implications for us today. Number one, in times of blessing, we have a choice to magnify self or to magnify God. When, when God blesses you, you have a choice to make. You, you can respond by drawing attention to your name and lifting high your name, or you can respond by magnifying the name of Christ, by lifting high the name of Christ. Here's some, some examples that come to mind for me is Psalm 67, where the psalmist prays that, that the Lord would bless them. Why does he pray that? It's not so that they can magnify their name or lift high the nation of Israel. Lord, bless us. Why? That the nations might praise the name of the Lord. They might fear God. They might lift high the name of Christ. Or what about in John 3, verse 22 to 30? John the Baptist has a thriving ministry. People are coming. They're sitting under his teaching. They're being baptized. He has his own disciples. And a conversation breaks out about him and about Jesus and what's going on and, and what is John's response. He must increase, he says in verse 30. He must increase it and I must decrease. In that opportunity, in that moment, John has an opportunity to lift high his name, to steal some glory. But instead of robbing glory from the Lord, he gives glory to the Lord. He magnifies the name of Christ. You have the same opportunity. I have the same opportunity every day. When blessing comes upon you, who will you magnify? Yourself or the Lord? Second implication. The servant of God who is used by God should respond in humble amazement. We see that both in Elizabeth and in Mary, that the, the servant of God is amazed. Why, why should God use us is the, the feel you get from both Elizabeth and Mary. Why should God bless me in this way that the mother of my Lord would be standing here before me? Why, why should God bless me, a humble servant? Why? They're, they're just amazed. They're amazed, as should we be. We should have that same sense of amazement. Are you amazed at what God has done in saving you? Are you amazed in how God uses you? We should have a humble sense of amazement in our lives. Third implication. God does not go by the world's standards to determine who he uses. He does not go by the world's standards to determine who he uses. What, what are the world's standards? The world's standards would say, you know what? Um, the strong, the influential, the wealthy, the well-known, the popular, that's who has the greatest impact on the world. But you know, there's nowhere in Scripture that leads you to think that. And everything from the very fact of the nation of Israel, small little people, to the most venerated and appreciated and respected king of Israel, David, to a humble servant girl, Mary. Everything leads you to see that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. 
God does not use the standards of the world that you have to be rich and influential and perfect and popular and athletic and whatever it is that you think the world says this is who God can use. That's not God's standards. And we should not hold ourselves to those standards. We should not evangelize and minister to those standards where, you know what, ooh, we really need to see this person come to Christ because God can really use him. Can't really use this guy. No. You've fallen into a trap if that's the way you evangelize. We share the gospel with anyone because it's not about the individual. It's about the God who saves. And that God who saves can and will and does use whoever he wants. So some of you sitting in here may be too proud. Some of you sitting in here may be too ashamed. But everyone sitting in here needs Christ and can be used by God. Look to him. Trust him to use you today. Fourth implication, final. God's blessings always outweigh the burdens of serving him. God's blessing always outweigh the burdens of serving him. The American idea of living in God's will is that everything's just going to be peachy and easy and smooth. And we can put nice little decals on our cars and we're going to be wealthy, healthy, prosperous. But you know what? It's not consistent with Scripture. In fact, more often than not, we see that the calling of God on our life and the blessing of God comes in the midst of great difficulty and trials. We certainly would understand that for Mary. Certainly her life wasn't easy moving ahead. We certainly would see that in Paul. Following Christ and obeying Him led to great trials and suffering as he walked in the will of God. You remember his response? He talked about all the suffering, the hardships he went through. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 through 10, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. I'm content with them. Why? Because it's not about me. Because the blessing of knowing Christ far outweighs any burden I might encounter for knowing Christ. Listen, you need to know that following Christ is not easy and it's not going to get any easier. Young people, don't buy into this lie that, hey, you know what, if I, I'm going to be a Christian and it'll just be peachy and easy and nice and it's going to make my life smooth. Probably not. It's going to mean you make sacrifices. It's going to mean some difficulty in your life. It's going to bring trials. And on the trajectory we're headed, it's going to bring suffering for all of us. But here's what else you need to know. Is that he is worth it. He is worth it. (laughs) Because he is God. He is God. He is God, my Savior. He is the one who is mighty and does great things. The one who has worked salvation with his mighty right arm. He's worth it. And so trust him. Look to him. 
And remember that the blessing of serving Christ will always outweigh any burden associated with serving Christ. Let's pray.